Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. Here it is, Easter Sunday. Isn't this amazing? Isn't it? Yeah, it is. Thank you. That was, that was awesome. Man, I love the way you guys did that song with just keys. That was beautiful. Thank you. That was awesome. So, can I um, just see if the PowerPoint is working? Is that all right? Just, uh, this is very professional, I know, so just hum amongst yourselves as a, as a moment. Cool. So, this morning, I want to talk about the fact that Sunday follows Friday. So, this is Easter Sunday. We've had Good Friday. I always remember as a kid wondering why it was called Good Friday when all the things that we talked about and remembered were the things that involved death and um, destruction and pain and suffering. But of course, they're good in terms of the outcome. But today is Easter Sunday. But in order to give some context to today, I want to actually talk a little bit about the time on Good Friday and the time between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Is that okay? Just to give a little bit of context. I'm really excited too because I believe this is not just a come along to church and hear a message about Easter Sunday on Easter Sunday, but I actually believe this is prophetic for you in terms of your life. Now, if you're new to that word, prophetic means when, when God takes something and brings it particularly into application in our lives and the way that He speaks to us today out of what it is that we're talking about. Even though we're remembering the amazing things that Christ did for us and accomplished at Easter, but we want to also know its application into us today. So let's just give a little bit of um, a little bit of background, and 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 really probably the the Friday thing I want us to focus on is is what was involved for Christ on Good Friday. How many people have seen the movie The Passion of the Christ? I I bought the DVD. Now, for those who haven't seen it, Mel Gibson directed it. It's basically about the, the period of time of Christ's suffering. Um, if I'm honest, I think I took about four times watching it before I could watch it all the way through. And if you're wondering why, then obviously you haven't seen it. Uh, and, and so the thing that struck me was I, I couldn't understand why is, it, why is it called The Passion of the Christ? When, when actually it's, it's, it's horrific, probably is the only way to describe that movie in terms of what it shows about what Christ suffered on our behalf. Well, to understand that, we've got to go back and look at the root of that word in English, passion. That word actually comes from Latin. And the Latin meaning of the word that we have in English is passion literally means to suffer. So when it talks about the passion of the Christ, it's naturally talking about the suffering of Christ. Now, isn't it interesting? I mean, I, I actually shared this in the wedding ceremony yesterday. I was talking, encouraging the couple to be passionate for one another. But what I actually did was I unpacked what that word really means. It means being willing to suffer. It means willing to feel the weight of love for another so much that you will endure incredible things for the sake of another. That's what we've received. Those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, and we, we talk about owning what Christ has done, we've, we've experienced the benefit of His suffering, His passion. 
And, and so sometimes I understand why we do it, but we talk quite glibly about, I'm passionate for Christ. You know, that tends to be good feelings and happy thoughts and butterflies and so on. But actually, if we're saying that I'm passionate for Christ, I'm willing to suffer. I'm, I'm so in love with the one who was so in love for me that I'm actually willing to feel the weight of that to the point where I will actually go through difficulties and challenges in order to express my love for him just as he did for me, the passion of the Christ. And so the, the story or the account of what happened on Good Friday is, is uh, it's there in the movie. It's obviously also there in the Gospels, the first four books of the, of the New Testament. But what I want to talk about is just the way that Sunday follows Friday. On Friday, a number of things happened to Jesus. And the sad thing is, the first ones actually happened while he was still in the company of his so-called friends, his disciples, his followers, those who'd been with him up to this point. And of course, the first one is that he was betrayed. That is, the opportunity to actually arrest Jesus was set up by Judas, one of Jesus' followers. This was set up prior to the Last Supper, but actually it took place or it kicked in after the Last Supper. What happened between when Judas set up his betrayal of Jesus and when he actually carried it out was that he got together with Jesus and the other followers. And what happened? Jesus, for those who don't remember, Jesus actually went around and washed the disciples' feet. He washed all of them. Now, again, that's a whole message in itself. We kind of think, well, that's kind of cute. That's kind of quaint. Um, the foot washing ceremony, and maybe you've been to a church service where there was a foot washing, and it was kind of a little bit awkward and a little bit odd. But you've got to understand the culture of the day, because in the culture of the day, that was a task left for the lowest of the servants. And that the reason they do it is they had open-toed footwear, etc., etc. So when you came into a house, your guests were always welcomed with foot washing. It was just the standard thing. So when the disciples have got together, obviously, we're all so cool and we're all so well-known to one another that nobody thinks of actually doing the thing that's normally culturally appropriate until Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher, takes off his... And we have this incredibly awkward moment where he goes around. In fact, it was more than one moment. Goes around and washes his disciples' feet. In fact, Peter gets so awkward when it gets to Peter. What does Peter say? Oh, yeah. In fact, he's kept on obvious. Are you going to wash my feet? <laughs> Water, towel, bowl. Do the math. And 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 Peter says, "You'll never wash my feet. Why? Because he's feeling awkward." And 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 Jesus says, "Unless you let me do this to you, you've got no part of what I'm about." So Jesus washes all the disciples' feet, including Judas, including Judas. And what does Judas do? He goes out and betrays him. Jesus is betrayed by one of his very followers. Not only that, that after Jesus is arrested, he is taken to be questioned. And when it gets to that point, and this is a, around the time leading up to when Peter denies Jesus, where are his followers now? They leave him. So he's betrayed. Now he's abandoned by the ones who followed him up to that point. And then what starts to happen is people trump up all these charges about saying things that he's done. They falsely accuse him. And that false accusation leads on to attacking and ultimately to his execution. 
So this is the, the scene setting on Good Friday. And so Jesus goes through all of that suffering and all of that beating and torment. I mean, again, I don't know whether you've ever heard talk about just what's involved in crucifixion. It's a horrible, hor- I mean, every way to execute somebody is horrible, but if you really want to add exponential to horrible, then execution is the way to do it. And it was in a way that was dreamed up to execute prisoners that would be long-suffering. And it was an opportunity to make a public spectacle of a criminal's death so that then it would dissuade others. In, in crucifixion, people don't die because they're nailed to a cross. They die ultimately of asphyxiation. That is, they get to the point where they can no longer breathe. So if you imagine feet are nailed on the plinth on the cross, uh, what a prisoner would do oftentimes to try and, as it got harder and harder to breathe, is they would push up on the plinth with their feet in order to take a breath. And if they've been on the cross for two or three days, then uh, mercifully what the soldiers would come along and do would, break their, would be to break their legs so they could no longer push, their, push up on their feet and breathe and they would, it would hasten death. A horrible two, three, four days to die in crucifixion. So Jesus is crucified. And if you read on it, I'm thinking particularly in, in Matthew 27, a number of things happen as it gets to the point on the Friday, on Good Friday when Jesus died. In fact, the Bible actually says about the sixth hour, so that's about midday, everything goes dark, and it's dark for three hours until three, three o'clock in the afternoon. And then Jesus cries out. He cries out, and it's recorded in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew records that people listening and think, oh, oh, he's calling out for Eli, Elijah. He's calling out for Elijah. Let's see if Elijah will come and rescue him. Others think, oh, let's give him some, something to drink. So they run and they get a sponge and they dip it in sour wine and they put it up on a stick to, to try and give it to Jesus. And then it says that Jesus gives up his breath and he dies. And as soon as he dies, three things happen. There's a tearing. There's a splitting, and there's an opening. The first one, we've actually just sung about it. The first one says, let me try that again. Sorry, could I just get some assistance? Go to the next screen, and the next one. There was a tearing, and the tearing that took place was a tearing on the curtain in the temple in Jerusalem. This was a curtain between the outer court, the, sorry, the, the inner court and the Holy of Holies. So the, what, what the Jews believed was that behind the curtain was the Holy of Holies. That is, that is where only once a year the high priest would go in once a year to make a, a sin offering in the presence of God. And he, and he had to be right, and he had to be clean, and he had to present. It was a, it was a great procedure. It was the procedure where when the, when the high priest went in, he went in with a rope tied around his middle and bells on his ankles. And they would feed the rope out as he went through the curtain or through the veil into the Holy of Holies to make the sin and sacrifice. Because if, if he wasn't clean, if he wasn't accepted, he might not survive. And so what they would do is if the bells stopped jingling, it meant he'd stopped walking, and if the rope went limp, 
then it meant he was no longer standing and nobody's going to walk in behind the curtain to get his body out, so they would just drag it out by the rope. And that, is, that had been part of the procedure that Jews knew and were familiar with. There was this holy of holies. God couldn't be approached because we're sinful men and women, and, and, and he cannot be approached. But, but suddenly, with the death of Christ, his son, the Bible says that the curtain, and let me tell you, this is not a curtain. The curtain we're talking about is at least 60 feet high, four inches thick. In fact, some people say it would take around 300 rabbis to actually put it up into place. What happened? The curtain was torn. Not only was it torn, but it was torn not bottom to top, but top to bottom. What's the significance of that? If it's 60 feet high and it's torn top to bottom, who's torn it? It's certainly not done by any man. And so with Jesus' death, the, the, the veil, the curtain, the separation between a holy God and normal men and women is ripped open so that through the death of Christ, it's like God is now saying, welcome in. We can come right into the presence of God himself. So the first thing is there's a tearing. Secondly, there's a splitting. The Bible says that, that rocks were split because there was an earthquake. Now, I don't need to talk to people in Christchurch about earthquakes. I've lived through earthquakes, but I haven't lived through the earthquakes you've lived through. But I do know the ones that I've lived through and that my family has lived through were terrifying. Whether it was me in Whanganui years ago or my, my family in the Edgecombe earthquake, I remember my mum telling the stories of ground waves so strong. She was out shopping at the time the earthquake struck, and there were ground waves so strong that telephone poles were doing 180-degree slaps uh, one side to another at each wave, and she was in the car, and the car was being thrown up and down and up and down into the air. Earthquakes are horrendous. And the thing that strikes me about earthquakes that makes them so distressing is that the thing we never think to question, the very ground that we stand on, no longer seems to be so sure. And I find that personally, in my experience, the thing that I found most distressing, the thing that I rely on that I assume will always be secure and safe no longer is. The Bible says that when Jesus died, there was earthquakes to the point that rocks split. And the third thing that happened is that there was an opening. Now, I, I don't know about you. I've never heard people preach a lot about this, but you can read it in Matthew 27, that when Jesus died, not only was the, the curtain torn, not only was there an earthquake and the rocks were split, but the Bible says that graves opened. And people came back to life, and as if that's not specific enough, I love it the way Matthew records it, and it says that they walked into town and were seen by many. Even before Jesus has risen from the dead, people are rising from the dead because of the power of his sacrifice. Can you imagine you're sitting at home with your family? 
Everyone's sitting around. I mean, maybe, maybe it's like I, my father passed away two months ago. And I, and I think about it now. I mean, what would it be like if I'm sitting at home and there's a knock on the door? It probably wouldn't be a knock because we buried him in Taniatu and it's a long way to Auckland from the Bay of Plenty. But that there's a knock on the door and there's dad at the door. That's what happened. There was a tearing, there was a splitting, and there was an opening. It's like, it's almost, the, it's, I, I just think it's like God having a little foretaste, a little, yeah, okay, get, get ready, this is going to go up. But look, here's just the foretaste. And people are going wild in the city because all of a sudden, yeah, yeah they were about to go, actually go and visit the, the grave of their relative, but now their relative's back and, at home and the grave is empty because of what Christ has done. Now, this is still Good Friday. Three o'clock in the afternoon. How many people have ever seen this sign before? Okay, if you've lived in London, you'll be very familiar with this sign. And if you've also lived in London, you're very, very familiar with these words. This is a sign that appears on the London Underground. And uh, you'll often hear when a tube train comes into a station, you'll hear an announcement over the public address system. Mind the gap between the train and the station. Now, you think about it, if they've got a sign for this and they've got words that automatically are played over a public address system every time a train, every time, I mean, you know, every time a tube train comes into a station, mind the gap between the train and the station. You've got to ask the question, why is that? Well, there's a very good reason why that is. is because a lot of people have not minded the gap between the train and the station, and there is a small gap, and, and people have tended to fall down into it. If you don't look where you're going, if you're not watchful where your feet are, you can actually miss the edge of the platform and the edge of the train and catch one leg down in between the train and the platform. So mind the gap. Mind the gap. Mind the gap. What's that got to do with Easter? Do you know there was a gap between Friday and Sunday? Now, I, I don't want to preempt anything, but if you read later on in Matthew's account of this season and this time, it's very obvious that those who were followers of Jesus, even though Jesus had alluded to what was going to happen, it didn't sound like they were sitting around with a great deal of expectation and hope once he'd been executed. And, and that, that gap between Friday and Sunday, that gap between his death and what was about to come that we celebrate on this day, is a gap where if, if you're not mindful of it, it's, it's like where you can lose your footing, where you can lose hope, where you can lose that sense of, you know, is, is, there, is there a good end to this story? Is there a, an opportunity for a, for, a, for a good ending? We'd like to think there was, but sometimes we get so overtaken, and, and perhaps the followers of Jesus were at that time, they're so overtaken with grief that they're actually in danger of not minding the gap and falling through the crack of hope in this season between Friday and Sunday. So let's come forward now to Sunday, and I'm going to refer to the gap again in a moment. And if you go into Matthew 28, it's, uh, it's really cool. So on the, on the first day of the week, which in terms of the Jewish culture would have been Sunday because Saturday was the Sabbath, Matthew tells us that the two Marys, Mary, Mary, long before they released a song, they got up early, and it says that they went to see the grave. 
where Jesus had been buried, a grave that we've already sung about, a grave that was borrowed. Joseph of Arimathea actually took charge of finding a place to bury the body of Christ at the end of Friday. So Mary and Mary went early in the morning to see the grave. And when they get there, it's not what they expect. In fact, here we have another earthquake, another shaking. And, and Matthew records that, that there is a shaking and there's an earthquake and, and suddenly there's an angel who has come down and he's rolled away the stone and he's sitting on the stone. Now, you've got to ask, why does an angel sit on a stone? Not because they're tired. See, when, when, any, when God sits, when, when any, any angelic being sits, it's, it's a sign that, that you, you sit down when everything is done. You sit down when things are finished. You sit down when there's no need to run around anymore. And the cool thing about this is, is that these women are just startled by it. I mean, you know, it's like, a, it's like there's special effects. There's an incredible lightning and, and glow on this angel. And it's so much so that the guards who were guarding the tomb, because they were told to guard the tomb, because the worry was that Jesus' disciples were going to come and open up the tomb and, and take the body away and then make out like he was resurrected. But, of course, they were guards here the whole time, so that couldn't happen. But they're they're so stunned by what they see with this angelic visitation that they're like dead men. And the angel is sitting there on the gravestone that's covered the tomb. And he says to the women, he is not here. Now here's the thing, why did the angel open up the grave? The angel didn't open up the grave so Jesus could be risen. The only reason he opened up the grave was so that the women could see in that he truly had risen. And so the angel says, he isn't here. And then he says to them, come and see. Come and see that he's not here. (laughs) Come and see that he isn't here. Come and see. I mean, and I love this. I mean, God is so tidy. There's the grave clothes, all neatly folded. Huh? And all the parents of teenagers said, <laughs> tidy your room. Even Jesus tidied his tomb when he was raised from the dead. Come and see. He's not here. Come and see. Oops, sorry. Sorry, I just seem to have jumped. Let's try that again. He isn't here. Come and see. And then, and then the angel says, go and tell. Go and tell all the other disciples that he's risen and that he will go ahead of you and meet you in Galilee. And the women are like, oh my gosh. This, and, and, and they race off. And again, we haven't got time to talk about it in detail, but you can read the end of Matthew's account. That, that just this, this joy and the sense of Jesus appearing in the midst of his disciples and, and, and you know, some people not believing the testimony of the women that he's actually been raised from the dead and other people walking with him and not recognize him until he reveals himself. And what he does is just this, this amazing sense that he is alive. This incredible sense of hope restored, the sense that Jesus, though he was crucified, though he was buried, now he is alive. Just think now about this gap between Friday and Sunday. 
See, on, Jesus, on Friday, Jesus was betrayed. On Friday, Jesus was abandoned. On Friday, he was falsely accused. He was attacked. But you know, all that that did was prepare for what he was going to do for us. So it's almost like in that gap between Friday and Sunday, the the accomplishment of the cross was that while he was betrayed, we were reconciled. Remember the the curtain, the veil being ripped open, and and that that separation between a holy God and sinful man was, was dealt with once and for all through his death. He was betrayed, but we were reconciled. He was abandoned, and yet we, as the people, are now embraced by a loving Father. He was falsely accused, and the irony is that though we deserve accusation for our sin, we are the recipients of a clean slate through faith in Christ. That we now are the ones who should have been accused but for whom now there is no condemnation when we're in Christ Jesus. And Jesus was attacked and killed so that we could be made alive. Can I just say sometimes, maybe you come into a church setting and you hear us talk about language that, think, well, hang on, I'm made alive, I, I am alive. And, and I know that. I mean, obviously, if you're here, you're, you're alive because if you weren't alive, you wouldn't be here. But when we talk about being made alive, what we're talking about is making made alive to the life that you were actually created for from the very beginning. Being made alive to the point that you are coming back to what you were created for, that was robbed by sin. So that your destiny and my destiny, we can live it out. And so what Christ did through his death is that he's made us alive. It's like no longer, see, death in the Bible doesn't necessarily talk about not breathing. It's talking about separation. And for so long, our sin has separated us from a holy God. But through the death of Christ that was signified by the ripping of that curtain where we could come into the holiest presence of God through Christ, we, we are now reconciled, we're now made right, and now we are made alive. There's no longer a separation, but we can live the life we were created for. In fact, if you want to read the life we were created for, look at, look at how it was set up in the beginning, at the beginning of the Bible, before man sinned, that sense of fellowship, that sense of closeness, that sense of intimacy, that sense of communion, that sense of connection, that sense of fellowship, that sense of hanging out together with God himself. It's what we are the recipients of through the cross. So, what? Quite a while after the death of Jesus, a man who had been a Pharisee, a Jewish teacher of the law, in fact, described himself as the Pharisee of all Pharisees, had an incredible encounter with Jesus Christ. At the time he had this encounter, he was actually in a season of his life where he was so passionate 
about his Jewish faith, that he felt he was doing God a service by doing all he could to find followers of Christ and imprisoning them and executing them. At the time, his name was Saul. And Saul had an incredibly dramatic encounter. You can read about it in the book of Acts in the Bible. And, and he has a rapid turnaround where from being a persecutor of followers of Christ, he becomes a follower of Christ himself. And probably, as you can imagine, when that news breaks amongst the followers of Christ, there's a lot of, oh, yeah, right. Ha, Saul, a Christian, yeah, right. What, the guy who's been chasing us down, the guy who's been imprisoning Christians, the guy who's been executing Christians, now he's, oh, yeah, come on, this is just another ploy to set us up so that he can arrest us. And, and it actually took a while before Christians were willing to accept him. And Saul's name changed. Often a, a, a mark in that culture was you marked a significant change of life with a change of name, and Saul became Paul, and Paul became the first church planter extraordinaire. In fact, most of what we have in our New Testament, a large percentage of it is writings of Paul to churches. One of the churches that he set up and wrote to is the church in a place called Corinth. And I want to just share some words that he wrote in what we have as the second letter he wrote to this church. And I want to read this to you. It's, it's from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is the amplified translation of the Bible, so it's got a few extra words. And the reason for that is the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and Greek has a, has a lot more nuance to it than English has. For example, we only have one word for love. In Greek, there's at least four or five. Uh, and so sometimes the translators say it's helpful to add a few more. So the bits and brackets are just explanation of the Greek text. So Paul writes, Blessed, greatly praised and adored, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts and encourages us in every trouble so that we will be able to comfort and encourage those who are in any kind of trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So if you get hard to get your head around that, what he's basically saying is, isn't God amazing? When we're upset and distressed, He comforts us. But not just so that we can hold on to the warm fuzzies, but so that we can then turn to other people we meet who are distressed and comfort them, not with a, oh, there, 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 must be really tough for you, but with a real sense of, wow, I've received comfort from God. Let me pass on to you the comfort that I've received from Him. And in it, God is glorified. Then He goes on. For just as Christ's sufferings are ours in abundance, as they overflow to His followers, so also our comfort, our reassurance, our encouragement, our consolation is abundant through Christ. It is truly more than enough to endure what we must. I don't know what you came expecting to hear on Easter Sunday, but here's some good news that I want to give you. And it's not tongue-in-cheek. That those words in yellow that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, they're true for you and I today as they were for him in that season. That the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. How many people here are passionate for Christ? 
I'm not surprised not everyone's got their hand up because I talk to you about what passionate means. Passionate means to suffer. See, what Paul is saying to this church at Corinth is, is that, you know, we are going to get distressed, but when we get distressed, God's the one who comforts us and He gives us the amazing opportunity to comfort other people in the same way that we've been comforted with what He gives us. And, and let me remind you that His sufferings are ours in abundance. What's Paul saying? He's saying that in this life as we follow Christ, there will be times when we suffer. Really? Where was that in the small print? Well, actually, the print wasn't that small. Jesus himself said, surely tribulations must come. Tribulations is a, is a wheelbarrow word for hard times, hard, to, hard things, challenges, problems, issues. Anybody here followed Christ and found that when you started following Christ, all your problems went away and you never had another problem, challenge, or issue in your life ever again? Good. Okay. So here's the good news. As we follow Christ, the one who suffered on our behalf, there will be seasons where in our life, if you haven't already found it, as I'm sure you have, when we feel like we're suffering, we're going through challenges and hard times and difficulties. But in that, what we also know is that our comfort and reassurance and encouragement and consolation is also from Him. Yeah, but... Mark, what's that got to do with this? Let me show you. Can I have two volunteers just to help me up on stage, please? So here's the deal. We know in our week, Sunday follows Friday, yeah? We know in our week that Sunday follows Friday. Mm, okay. So you know that Friday will eventually turn into Saturday and Saturday will eventually turn into Sunday. And remember at the beginning we talked about Good Friday and we talked about Easter Sunday. We talked about all that went on on Good Friday, all the suffering, all the betrayal, the abandonment, the false accusation, being attacked. We talked about at the end of that day how there were things that were torn and things that were split and there were things that were opened up. And then we talked about the season where there's not a lot recorded of what was happening until we get to the morning that Mary Mary goes out to see the grave. And then it becomes apparent all that's happened between then and now. And there's rejoicing and there's celebration. Here's my encouragement to us all. Is that when you're in your Friday... Maybe when you felt betrayed. Maybe when you felt abandoned. Maybe you felt betrayed by the very people that you thought you could rely upon most. Maybe you've been left by the people that you thought were always going to be with you. Maybe there are people who have accused you of things that just aren't true. 
Maybe there's people who have attacked you. Maybe not physically, but maybe verbally. And see, the danger is when we're going through a tribulation, when we're going through a challenge, when we're going through a hard time, when we're going through our Friday, the danger is that we think this is all there will ever be. And it's so important when we're in that season that we mind the gap. Because just because we can't see much going on, it doesn't mean to say that God isn't working. Just as He was at that first Easter, I believe He continues to do so. We sang earlier on about the resurrected Christ who's resurrecting me. I I like words. I take notice of words. And I notice the lyric in that song. It says, resurrecting. Intense, what does that mean? It's present tense. The resurrected, the one who is resurrected, is resurrecting present tense me. What does that mean? That there are times and seasons in my life where I need resurrection, where things have died or hopes have been lost or dreams have been forgotten or dreams have actually died totally died and disappeared, but actually the resurrected Christ is resurrecting me and He's working and He's working. What does it require of me between Friday and Sunday? I believe to mind the gap, that is to stay close to Him. How do I do that? Well, think of what happened at that first Easter. The first thing was there was a tearing. What was the goal of that tearing? To encourage us to come close. See, one of the biggest temptations where we're in our Fridays is that we want to distance ourselves. We may not even even feel like we can be close to God because we don't either we don't think we can or we don't think we deserve or we don't want to. But that's the very season where we need to remember, come on, the curtain was torn. And just because I'm in my tribulation, I'm in my problem. So come on, don't run from him, run to him. Don't distance, come close. And that first Easter, there was a splitting. Those things that we tend to rely on are not so reliable anymore. Now, I know that's not a nice thing, but can I say to you, sometimes in our life, that's actually what we need. Maybe not literally, but figuratively, that the things we've depended upon, the relationships we've depended upon, the people, the circumstances, the the mechanisms of life we've relied upon, God starts to shake them. And, And what do we do? Well, the choice is ours. We can either run around in distress or we can run to Him. The last of those three things that happened on that first Easter was that there were an opening of graves and dead people came to life. How can that help us? We're in our time of tribulation. Do you know every time somebody stands up and the word we use in church is testify. It's just a fancy way of saying anybody stands up and tells their story of what God has done in their life or in their experience. You know what that has? That, that carries the spirit of prophecy. It's like when, when somebody testifies, tells their story, it's not so that you can sit there and feel, oh, well, it's all very well for you. God obviously loves you, but He doesn't talk to me like that. And he won't do it. You know what, what, how we should receive it? To say, God, you've done it for them. Do it for me. Bible says God's no respecter of persons. What that means is he's not going to, well, you know, Tico's my favorite, but I'm sorry, the rest of you are, <laughs> never mind. No, no, no. If he's done it for Tico, if he's done it with, for Phil, if he's done it for anyone, he'll do it for you. But what we've got to do is understand that when somebody's testifying, it's like, maybe for us, it's like something dead has been called back up into life, just as it did literally at that first Easter, and we should celebrate it. 
and hold on to testimony and hold on to even those words that have been spoken over us, believing that we might be in Friday now, but Sunday follows Friday. But if we don't mind the gap, the problem is we slip, we fall, or we miss the opportunity to step into all that God has for us. I, I, I love what we celebrate on Easter Sunday, but what I, my heart to share with you this morning is I believe as prophetically is it, it's like God is saying to equippers, come on equippers, let the first Easter be like a, a map of what it can be like in your journey when you're in a Friday, because if you're not in Friday now, you will be, because that's part of the journey of following Christ. The sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. Woohoo! Hands up for suffering. Let me try that again. Woohoo! Hands up for suffering. Do you know, <laughs> another writer, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials and tribulations of many kind, knowing that the testing of your faith will work as perfect work within you. So if you're having problems, James actually writes and says, you should be rejoicing. Why? Because it's a sign that God's working. The key for us is to remember that Sunday follows Friday. Mind the gap. And when you're going through that tribulation, don't run from Him. Run through the curtain that's already split in two so you can run right into His presence. And if He's shaking some things that you've relied on, don't lose your rag. Just say, God, I, I can hold on to you because you're the rock that will not fail. And if you're wondering whether life, anything good can come out of your situation, listen around for the testimony of those who have testified how they've seen something turn from death to life. Hold on to that and say, do it again, God. Do it again. Do it again. Sunday. I, I don't know why. I just, this is in my head, so I'm saying, thinking it must be God dropping it in because I never thought of this before. Okay. Some wisecrack is probably sitting in the audience saying, yeah, Sunday follows Friday. But Sunday also goes before the next Friday. And you know what? That's right. But when you get to that Friday, Sunday still follows that Friday too. Because that's our life. Following Christ does not mean we're devoid of tribulation and challenges. It just means there's always hope. There's always a Sunday. There's always the life of Christ being made manifest in your situation. So where are you at this morning? Thank you, guys. You can take a seat. Where's your world right now? Maybe you're in a bit of a Sunday right now. You're in a season of breakthrough, a season of life. You're feeling like things that were dead have come back to life and you're rejoicing and celebrating. And it's almost like your journey personally is almost in sync with the day that we celebrate today. That's awesome. And I want to encourage you, continue that rejoicing. But continue to hold on to what the Word of God says. That the reason we can make it through those times and have our Sundays of days of celebration is because of the comfort of Christ that is ours in abundance. He so wants to make it known to us and our, us to experience it. He loves it when we do, and He loves it when we actually enjoy and see that breakthrough. Maybe right now in your life, you're in a Friday. It's pretty dark. Doesn't seem to be much good going on. 
Maybe those four words I've I've talked about, those four phrases, maybe they ring, maybe some of them ring true. Maybe all of them ring true for you in some way. Betrayed, abandoned, falsely accused, attacked. Maybe you're just feeling distant. Maybe you're not even sure that God's actually caring much right now. Can I encourage you with that picture from the Word of God? Just as that first Easter, at the end of the day of suffering, the passion of the Christ, things were torn, split, and opened up. Right now, there are people in this room that the enemy has had a field day wanting to keep you isolated. Some of you have you've encountered it this way. You've had this thought, man, if I ever open up and told anyone about what I'm going through, I don't know what would happen. Do you know what that is? That's the enemy trying to stitch the curtain back together in your life to keep you separated from God. Oh, but hang on, Mark. You just said about telling another person that's not God. You know what? You know how God works? He often puts what it is that we need in the life of another. The reason he does that at Tico mentioned it before. It's because we are a body. We're a body. See, see if, if I get everything direct from God, then the danger is ultimately I become self-sufficient and judgmental of others. But if I cry out to God and He hears my cry, you know, my experience is very often He gives what I need into the life of another, which is pretty risky. Because what if you don't give it? You know why else it's risky? What if I don't ask for it? What if I don't open up? See, that's why the body of Christ, that's another picture for the church, that we are to be in relationship with one another as we're in relationship with Him. So can I encourage you, see that when the curtain is torn, that means you've not only got access to God, but through Him you can find others who follow Christ and open up your will to them, that we can encourage one another. He comforts us in our distress so that we may encourage others with the comfort that we've received from Christ. Don't be separated. Don't be distant. Let this Easter be the the coming home moment for you in the midst of all that you're going through. And if God's been shaking a few things you've been relying on, Just hold on to Him. I know that sometimes that's horrifying because we don't know that we're actually relying on other things until they're shaken. And then we're like, oh, really? Was that relationship so key to my sense of security? Hold on to Him. And let the testimony of others bring you courage and hope that even what feels dead in your life right now can be raised up and live again. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.